their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I. Send me. This is the word of the Lord. Many people remember when Princess Diana was in a crash and the crisis that that started. Some of you might be old enough to remember when Kennedy was shot and you remember exactly where you were. Or when one of the shuttles went into space and exploded and you remember you first heard that news. Some of us, more recently, as recent as this week, might remember when we first heard that that sovereign who had reigned for 70 years passed away, Queen Elizabeth. This text begins in the year that King Uzziah died. The people know their king had passed away and it was in this year that Isaiah receives his call. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah has an encounter with the Lord. Today we're going to divide this message into three basic parts. An encounter that Isaiah has when he looks up and has an encounter with God. Then he looks in and realizes who he is in juxtaposition to that holy God. And thirdly, once healed and transformed by God, he can now look out into the world and join him in mission. So looking up, looking in, and looking out. In the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, what do we know about this king? You know, in the Old Testament, there are lists of bad kings who did what was good in their own eyes. It says that they did what was pleasing in their own eyes. And then there's a list of good kings. Thankfully, King Uzziah is actually on the list of good kings. He was overall a good king. Now, you won't believe this. He, he reigned for 52 years. He started at the age of 16. I cannot believe that part of... of of, of the history of, of, of that. I, I have these keys, you know, and my kids sometimes when they turn 16, they learn how to drive, and I have a hard time handing them the keys to the car at 16, much less would I have given, and I've had four of them that went through the age of 16. Maybe those of you who have also had kids and gone past the age of 16, you know what I'm talking about. Would you hand them over a whole kingdom? But that was the case with Uzziah. And he reigned, and he reigned well. But he had one problem. He did not finish well. At the very end of his life, he made a mistake, an arrogant mistake. He got impatient 
with the priests who were supposed to come and light the incense for worship. And because they weren't showing up, they weren't showing up, they weren't showing up, he got impatient and just went and did it himself. And there were some Deuteronomic and Old Testament laws that prohibited the king who was supposed to do his political reigning duties to cross into that area of religious ritual which was left for the priests. And he crossed that boundary, he crossed that line and lit the incense himself. And because he disobeyed God with arrogance doing that, God punished him with something like leprosy and that is how he died. Now the people who would hear this in the original when it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, they would remember that point. It says that it's in that year that Isaiah sees the Lord. And he sees him high and exalted, sitting on a throne. And the train of his robe is filled the fills the temple. It's very interesting here, two T's you need to remember. Throne, the T of throne, and the T of temple. God, in juxtaposition to Uzziah, who was bound to one area, the throne, and could not and should not have passed into the area of the temple to light the incense, human beings have boundaries, the king even has boundaries, but God, his, he's seated on a throne, and his, the train of his robe fills the temple, for God there are no boundaries. And so that, I don't want that point to be lost on you that for the original hearers, they would have right away seen the juxtaposition of, oh yeah, Uzziah crossed that boundary and there's a creature-creator distinction that is being made here in this passage. It says that God, however, is seated on the throne and his train of his robe fills all the way into the temple. God is majestic. God is holy. God is over everything. Now, this line, I saw the Lord, some of you might have already been asking inside of you the question, how is it possible that somebody would see the Lord? It says in other texts that if we saw the Lord, we would be consumed. How can that be? Calvin, in his commentary, says, people are able to see the Lord in as much as their spiritual capacity allows them to do so. But it is interesting, according to some biblical commentators, that while he says, I saw the Lord, all the description is about things around God, never a description of God himself. And so we want to make note of that. One thing we do know from uh, verse 2 is that above him were these angels called seraphim. Now, I love the word seraphim because my fourth and youngest daughter, she's just turned 17, she is named Serafina. Serafina comes from the original word seraphim, which are these fiery angels. It means ardent one or burning one. So you think of fire, of passion, of swiftness with the word seraphim. These angels have a particular characteristic that they have six wings. And it says here in the text that with two wings they covered their faces. Most scholars tell us that this is evidently, uh, th that the reason for this is that God's holiness and his radiance is so much, is so huge that for even the angelic beings to 
look upon the countenance of God would be too much and they would be consumed. And so with those two wings, they cover their faces. And then it says that with the next two wings, they cover their feet. Now there are two possible interpretations to this. One is that that is a sign of humility. I don't know if you know this about uh, Mediterranean cultures and uh, Arab cultures, but the shoe, and especially the bottom of the shoe, is something that is considered dirty, despicable, or the lowest part of everything. And so you never want to sit in a way that if you have somebody important over here, you don't cross your feet and point the bottom of your feet to them. This is a true cultural thing that still happens today. In fact, some of you might remember when years ago when President Bush was doing a Middle East tour, uh, uh, a journalist took a shoe and threw the shoe at the president and he had to duck quickly to avoid the shoe. In American culture, we interpret that as, wow, they took the shoe as a projectile to try to, to kill or to hurt or maim our president. Now, my, that might be true, but in that culture, what they're doing is a thing called shoeing. In fact, there are some psalms in the word of God that talk about this. And so the, the concept is that the shoe or the sandals are something dirty, and when you throw it at someone, it means I disagree with you and I do not respect you. And so that's what that sh the shoe is about. So the angels in this culture are covering their feet as a sign of respect, honoring the king. The other interpretation is simply that they covered their feet is a euphemism, a polite way to say they covered their nakedness, and so they are covering themselves like this. And the third set of wings are the ones they used to fly because these angels are emissaries and ambassadors of God, and they fly at his commission and at his good pleasure. And we will see that that will be necessary in a few minutes. What are these angels doing? It says that they are calling out to one another. In fancy liturgical language, we call this antiphonal call and response methodology. What does that mean? Well, someone says A, the other one says B. The other one says A, the other one says B. There's this repetition and chorus that's going on in the Holy of Holies. And this is, is what they're saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then the other group is responding. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, I'm going to be brave today because it said in the song, do not hold back. So I'm not going to hold back. And I'm going to try something in a Reformed church that I sometimes do when I preach at a Pentecostal church. And so you're going to have to bear with me. Just humor me for a moment. I'm going to have these two sides, just so that we can get an idea of what that throne room was like. I'm going to have these two sides say the first part of that verse with me, which is, and I'll tell you when, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. That's all you have to say. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And the first time you're going to say it in a soft voice, then we're going to say it in a normal voice, and then we're going to say it in a loud voice. So three times. But when you said it the first time, we're going to wait for a moment because the other angels who are sitting on this side are going to say, the whole earth is full of his glory. That's all you have to say. The whole earth is full of his glory. Can you handle that? Yeah? 
Three or four of you are saying okay? <laughs> okay. So let's try it. This is just so that we can sound and hear what it sounds like and so also for our kids and young people to hear what might the throne room, at least according to this description in Isaiah, sound like. So this side is going to say holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. One, two, three. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Amen. You passed the test. This is more or less what it might have sounded like with the angels back and forth just praising the holiness of God. Now let's look at those words for just a moment. What does this mean? We see the word repeated here, holy, 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 three times. Some, some uh, thinkers say that this is a way of Holy is the Father, holy is the Son, holy is the Spirit. Some people look at it as the uh, triune God uh, being respected and worshipped as holy. Others also say that we need to remember that in, in English language, and maybe there's some teachers here, and correct me later if I'm wrong, but don't do it now, do it after the service privately. <laughs> we say fast, then we have a comparative, faster, and then we have a superlative, fastest. But in the Hebrew language, they use repetition to show that something is important, that it's like the superlative. So instead of saying holy, holier, and holiest, they use a mechanical or literary device of repetition. So instead of saying God is the holiest of them all, it just says holy, 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 three times to emphasize this is important. God is holy. There was a professor in uh, Louis Burkhoff. Some of you might remember Louis Burkhoff from Calvin Seminary. This guy was an eminence. He wrote a Theologia Systematica that is about this thick, has traveled the world, and many, many seminaries of different traditions to this day still use that book as their the, uh, systematic theology book. And in one of his commentaries, what this man says is that he quotes the following. It does not seem proper to choose one of God's attributes as any higher than any other. But if this were permissible, it seems like there is enough scriptural evidence that his holiness would be a good selection. And that's because God is love, but we don't see anywhere love, love, love. God is wise, but we don't see wise, wise, wise. But we do see in scripture, holy, holy Holy, and we sang about it this morning. The holiness of God stands out as one of the key attributes that in his revelation in the word of God, we see as a notable attribute of God. And we know that holiness comes from the word that means to be separate. He is separate from, but he is also separate for. And this is a very important descriptor of the Lord. 
And then the angels conclude their antiphonal uh, sing, uh, song response by saying, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, you have to remember, this is coming to Israel, at a to the uh, people of God at a time of crisis. The king has just died. And in a time of crisis, we're usually looking at what is our identity? Who are we? And the people of Israel were very proud to be the people of God, but sometimes they overextended that reach into saying we are God's special people. The others are not special. It is just about us. Forgetting that it's not to be just separate from the nations, but to be separate for the nations, to go with faith, hope, and love as missionaries and of us as a nation of light to share the goodness of the gospel with all the earth. And so here Isaiah is saying that he hears the angels in this vision saying, not just Israel, not just America, not just Argentina where I grew up, not just Peru, not just you fill in the blank, whatever country you want to, God does not make exceptions of people. He is going for the whole enchilada. He owns the whole world and the whole language, tribe, nation, every ethnic group in the world belongs to God and there will be representatives from every group around the throne room of God. We see that in the book of Revelations, worshiping the Lord. So some of the people might have taken offense when they saw Isaiah in this vision saying, the whole earth, not just Israel, the whole earth is full of his glory. Brothers and sisters, one thing is clear. God does not share his holiness nor his glory with anyone. He will not share a single square inch of human creation or of this world with the enemy, and then go to a plan B and say, let's scrap the world, let's scrap earth, and let's take all these people and take them to a place called heaven. No, you are emissaries of heaven on earth. That's why Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You are ambassadors of heaven on earth. The whole earth is full of his glory. It says then, something that is common of theophanies, in verse 4, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. John Calvin, in one of his commentaries, says about this, if inanimate objects are able to respond in this way in the vision of Isaiah, how much more should we who can taste, smell, understand? Isaiah has looked up, and he had an encounter, a confrontation with the most holy God. And then there comes a turn in the text, and he looks in. And now he sees himself in juxtaposition to this holy, powerful, other God. And he sees who he is, and he responds appropriately. What is that appropriate response? To say, woe is me! I am dead. I am ruined. For I, and then he confesses with his lips, for I am a man of unclean lips. And not only am I a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He is confessing his inadequacy before a holy, majestic God. 
he has looked in and he sees that he falls short. I don't know if you ever get that feeling. I think every, this, this, remember, this is the man of religious ritual, the man of God that is speaking here of himself as unworthy. There's bad news and good news. <laughs> the bad news is that all of us, if we look in the mirror and we're brutally honest with ourselves, we can see that something's still out of whack. Something is still not quite where it should be. There is still the hope of a new creation. There is still the hope of a work that needs to be completed and finished in Jesus Christ. But the good news is that the good news of the gospel is already foreshadowed right here. And I want that to be the centerpiece of this message. After that response of saying woe to me and seeing himself as inadequate, I'm a man of unclean lips. He confesses this. I live among a people of unclean lips. Something amazing happens. It's not Isaiah saying, okay, here's what I have to do to solve this situation. Let me get into solution problem-solving mode and I'm going to get this done. No. It is God in his divine agency who makes the first step and the angels are going to now be put to work after this confession. Ray Steadman in one of his sermons says, the angels see the, and hear the cry of a needy man in the midst of all that noise of worship and they have to leave their place and go down and tend to that needy heart. It says here, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with that live coal, he goes and he touches the servant of God on his lips. He touches his mouth. And he says, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Why does the angel touch him on the lips? And the answer seems obvious. Some of the early church fathers could already see this. And they say, God meets someone at the point of their confession. And because Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips, that's where he precisely he needs to be touched with that live coal. God can meet you and me at the point of our confession. But not only that, that which he cleanses and redeems will also be used as the instrument of service. This is going to be the spokesman of God to the people of God. And as the spokesman, he is going to be touched, not only at the point of his confession, but the instrumentation that will be used, his tongue, his mouth, his lips, will be used to proclaim the word of God. And so that seraphim has touched him and announces that when this has touched his mouth, the whole guilt that he had felt when looking in the mirror, is taken away. And the sin that might be there, even in the man of ritual responsibility for the people of God, for their moral well-being, even that man has to be under the love and mercy and grace of God to receive forgiveness and what is called here atonement. This is incredible. Brothers and sisters, if you forget anything else I say today, remember this. The live coal with which the seraphim touch Isaiah on his lips is today.
for us who live on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the New Testament live coal that not only touches your lips but transforms the whole. Can I get a reformed amen? amen. It is Jesus Christ who atones for our sin and who says to us, you are forgiven, you are loved, you are accepted, you are invited into the kingdom of God. Praise his name. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the one that can give us faith, hope, and love. Jesus is the live coal of which we see a foreshadowing in this Old Testament Isaiah passage. So, we're at the last part of the message. It's that usually when I say that, that somebody, whether asked for it or not, says, Amen. <laughs> the first part was Isaiah looked up, had an encounter with a holy and majestic God. He looks in and he realizes that he quite doesn't measure up, confesses his sin, but then the angel comes and cleanses him and invites him into new relationship. Once healed, he can now look out. He's been vivified. He's been made alive. And he can now look out. Look up, look in, look out. Here's the final part of the passage. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? There is a question here, and if you're a grammarian or a uh, professor or a teacher and you're used to using a red pen or a green pen to correct your, your students' papers, you might be correcting the scripture here trying to say, wait a minute, first he talks in the singular and then he talks in the plural. We got to keep it all singular or all plural. What's going on here? It's not a mistake. Of course, here we see Jesus saying, I'm sorry, God saying, whom shall I send? It is God, the unity of God, Father, Son, and Spirit as one saying, whom shall I send? I've got a task for you to do. Whom can I send? Then we see it in the plural as the divine council, the trinity, the sending trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit saying, who will go for us? And, of course, then the question is laid out there for Isaiah to answer, who has nothing to lose now because he thought he was dead meat. He can now say, hey, here am I. Send me. Brothers and sisters, it's not just an individual calling, although it includes that. It is also the collective calling of the church of Christ called and sent into the world. I want you to hear this. In missiology, this is a big deal, a big thing, a big thought, a big idea, and I'll let you wrestle with it. The church, as a church, is sent into the world. Every one of us, individually, but also corporately, in our marriages, in our families, everyone, the young and the old, we are sent into the world as emissaries of life, of emissaries of hope and emissaries of love. You, yes, you are sent. When you go and you fix cars as a mechanic, you are doing it unto the glory of God and you're an emissary of the gospel right there where you are. 
you who teach, you who are a mom, you who write poetry, you who like riding bikes, you who play soccer, you are all emissaries of the gospel. The church is sent into the world to do the work of God. Within that, there, is, there are particular callings of people who go, whether it's as, as missionaries or whether they go as evangelists or disciplers or, in our case, church planters, they are going responding to the particular calls. There are five billion people who still do not know Jesus Christ as Lord. And for such a time as this, God is still raising up leaders to go and do that. The big revolution in missions has been that nationals are training nationals. And with just a little support and prayer and encouragement, those nationals at a fraction of a cost, what we call low-cost, high-impact, are going and establishing new outposts of the kingdom. And those churches, inspired by the Spirit, are going out and preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And people are repenting of their sin and having, like Isaiah, an encounter with God. They also, all around the world, are looking up, looking in, and then looking out and joining God in his work around the world. Brothers and sisters, let's join forces together because for such a time as this, he has called us. And we can also say corporately and individually, here am I, send me. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we all say amen. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have called us, you have redeemed us, you have saved us, and now you have sent us. We ask you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit might help us this very week to work within the paradigm of the resurrection power of Jesus and in the Pentecost power of the Spirit that we might glorify you as our Father. We ask you, Lord, empower us, prepare us, and help us to align with your will for the world. For we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let us sing.